is Transitional Matters with Chris Marshall. With Chris Marshall. We've gathered the best thinkers from around the world to talk about the most important social, environmental, financial, technological, and geopolitical transitions that affect your life. Transitional Matters is all about bringing the greatest thinkers directly to your ears. The most important trends, megatrends, and transitions that are going on around us. Now zip up and put your headphones on. Broadcasting direct from the UK, here's your host, Chris Marshall. So I'm joined today by uh, Clint Cox. Clint, thanks so much for jumping on this podcast. And really the, the topic of discussion today and why we've got Clint on is we want to be looking at how I'm going to put this as how digital assets could change the world. It's a very, very broad topic. And I, I think you're going to see where this conversation goes and why that is so broad. But at the very start of this, Clint, can, can I get you to talk about perhaps the basics uh, the origins of the landscape we see around us and, and kind of just defining what we're talking about when we start throwing in the terms of crypto, blockchain, stablecoin, all those kind of bits. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, Chris, thanks for having me on. Great pleasure to be here. And yeah, I mean, I, I think as we look at the, the digital landscape, we know that, you know, the microchip changed everything. Then you have the personal computer and then you have things like the Internet, right? The Internet changed the world. And the way it changed the world was it basically gave us a way to exchange data on a broad base across the globe in real time. For me, that's an amazing feat. And it's really changed the way we interact with each other. It's changed the way we relate to each other, uh, for better or for worse. And I think that that's, you know, it's been amazing. I, I think the mobile phone, you know, when Apple came out with the iPhone, that really changed it to the next level, right? That really took it up a notch because now we can carry around the great power of the internet in our pockets. So, you know, whereas we used to go to the bank to do banking, we used to, you know, go to the place to pick up the food. Now we just hit an app and everything, we can do everything from the phone. So that's great. But, the, you know, there's been something missing. And what's missing is the exchange of value in real time. We haven't been able to exchange value in real time. Yeah, I mean, you can send a wire, you can do that kind of thing, but, you know, People still go to Western Union all the time. People still send money that way. And I think it's the real power is now being able to say, okay, we're going to take this up a level. And Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever Satoshi was, she, he, they, I don't know. But Satoshi came up with this really phenomenal invention called Bitcoin. Uh, and I do suggest if, if you haven't read, not you, Chris, but any of the listeners, if you haven't read the original white paper, that Satoshi Nakamoto put out there, it is really worth the read. And we're talking here, Clint, this is like only 2007? It was actually uh, Halloween 2008. Okay. The paper is released. And then the first block basically trades in uh, January of 2009. So that's the origin. We're only like 12 years into this, right? I mean, this is really, really early times. Imagine, you know, depending on where you talk about the beginning of the internet, you know, there was the ARPANET first and then the internet and you have all that. But let's just say this is the mid nineties or something or the early nineties for the internet. We're basically, we're not quite there on what this technology can do, but you know, 12 years into it, we can see that this is already going to change everything. So let, let's get back to your original question. Like, okay, what are cryptos, digital assets, you know, stable coins, blockchain, all that. So first of all, let me say, Everyone's got their own definition for all of this. So I'm going to give you Clint's definitions for some of this stuff. And you're going to go out there and be like, man, he, he was wrong. I looked it up, man. It said this on this website. That's right. Everyone's got their own view. Um, so I'm just going to say cryptos are blockchain-based fungible units of value. So it's on a blockchain and the, they're fungible units of value, which means they're totally interchangeable with each other. They're exactly the same digitally. On CoinMarketCap, they list about 15,000 different cryptos. So there's a lot of different cryptos. So let me talk for a, a moment about blockchain. This is the underlying technology. So it's you know, a digital ledger technology showing basically a real-time permanent list of transactions. So it can't be edited, can't go back and change it. It's a real-time list of these transactions. So you can tell if someone has a certain amount of crypto, it's in this wallet and it's on the blockchain. You can always see 
number one, how that crypto got into that, that wallet, and number two, when it leaves. So you can always tell. So that's great. You can see all the transactions just go on and there's usually a, you know, a public ledger where you can see all this stuff. So that's the blockchain technology. So unfortunately, you get this, uh, the term cryptocurrency is used interchangeably with all cryptos. A lot of people say, oh, the cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrencies are actually a very small subset of crypto. So cryptocurrencies are basically a decentralized digital money designed to be used over the internet. That is, and I, I think that's actually Coinbase's definition, and that is a different subset. So you're talking about things like, I mean, Bitcoin's used as a, a store value, but you're also looking at things like Zcash, Dash. These things are designed to be used as currency on the internet. And that's great. That's fine. And they have their own value. And it, that value shifts according to what people think it's worth. So it's like a currency that a, you know, a sovereign currency that a nation would have, but it's on the internet and it's basically available to the public if you can find it on an exchange. Then you have stable coins. Now this is a different brand of cryptocurrency. Stable coins are basically a digital coin with its value that's pegged to a certain currency, pegged to a certain crypto, or pegged to a certain basket of goods. So, you know, most of these are actually pegged to the US dollar. You've got things like USD coin, you've got uh, Tether, uh, Paxos, you got a, a bunch of different stable coins that are basically one stable coin for the US dollar. And this is the one that like the SEC is going after. They're saying, hey, man, what's going on there? You know, we got to regulate this. This is like a totally different way to, you know, value the dollar and use the dollar. So and, and I agree that's something that should definitely be looked at because the big question in the industry is what's good and bad about the industry and what's a risk is Tether. Because Tether is used for so many different exchanges to trade cryptos, but Tether's been shown to come up short a few times on whether or not they are actually backed by the you know U.S. dollars that they say they're backed by. So long-winded answer. We also like to talk about a couple other categories like digital assets, which is basically anything with its value derived from its presence in the digital world, right? But this can be photos, music, cryptos, NFTs, databases. Everything that's on the web that has value, that's accessible there, that's basically a digital asset. So a lot of different ways to think about that. No, that's, I, th I think that's a really good kind of uh, answer you've given. Clint's definition, I love it. We're going to come on to NFTs a little bit later because I, I'm going to be honest, I've, I've kind of developed a milder fascination with NFTs. But before that, let's. you kind of started talking about here the kind of the link between a crypto asset and what we'd call like a traditional asset. Let's throw in there the US dollar. So how do these traditional assets relate to these new technologies? Yeah, so we're really at the very beginning stages of kind of this crossover where I think we all are familiar with things like real estate, exchanges, data storage, file storage, but human networks, music, art, this is part of our everyday lives. So I think it's important to understand that there will be a digital version of what already exists in the analog world in this world that we're going towards, you know, call it the metaverse, the digital world, web 3.0, whatever you want to call this, we are going towards a world that there is an absolute, you know, analog for whatever is in this real world, it'll be in the digital world. So let's, let's real estate. That's a great example. So Real estate, we all know, you know, hey, you know, location, location, location. It all depends on, you know, where you're at. And that's true. And I, I think we're seeing that in the digital world. So Decentraland is, you know, this digital world that has, you know, a bunch of places that you can go around to. People buy property in there. They set up shop. They do different activities. I mean, it's really interesting. And you can actually buy real estate in Decentraland. And you can trade real estate in Decentraland. And just like in the real world, if you're closer to the center of the action, it's more expensive. That real estate's more expensive. So I think that's been really interesting to see is that that correlates. That real world, digital world correlates very well. But then you start looking at other things like exchanges. So, you know, we have, you know, London Stock Exchange, London Metals Exchange. We have, you know, things like uh, the CME here in Chicago. You have all these different exchanges around the world, NASDAQ, New York Stock Exchange, all these exchanges, you take real things, sometimes it's commodities, sometimes it's stocks, and you're trading. 
Same thing in, you know, this whole new digital world. You have different places where now what's really interesting is you have places like Coinbase where you can do exchange of cryptos, but it's limited to a certain number of cryptos. And then you have things that are called DEX or decentralized exchanges where you can exchange all kinds of crazy cryptos that aren't available on Coinbase. So just like different exchanges in the real world actually have, you know, different things that they trade, same thing in the digital world. File storage, you know, I think everyone is probably familiar with AWS, uh, Amazon Web Services. They're actually, you know, this huge conglomerate of the cloud and the cloud services. That's where people store their data. And that's great. The same thing is going to happen with things like Filecoin and, you know, uh, storage and a few of these other ones that, that are out there where you're going to be able to store your stuff in, you know, basically other people's computers, but in a very secure private way. So it's fascinating. There's a lot of these different things that correlate. Now, we'll get into NFTs later, as you said, I, it, it will take a deep dive. But when you start looking at things like music and art, that's going to change as well, because we all listen to music and most of it is now digital. I don't know when the last time you put a record on. Um, I actually do have a record player, very seldom use it, but we're going to a completely digital entertainment you know, system. And, and that's the way we watch movies and, and TV and all of that. Um, but things like insurance, all that, but that's all easy. Let's talk about the hard stuff. The hard stuff is when we start talking about government. Is government going to be digitized? And what does that look like? What does it look like when AI starts getting involved in what kind of media or what kind of announcements the government should make? What does that look like? What does it look like when you can actually vote as a citizen in real time on issues? Because, I mean, really, what are your representatives there for? Your representatives are there to represent you. Well, what if you can start voting on things in real time? Do we need representatives at the same level? It starts to become a very, very convoluted and really difficult, I guess, arena to think about is as humans, when we start organizing ourselves in new ways around this technology, everything changes. And it's really hard to think about the world before the mobile phone, the smartphone, but those changes that we have with the smartphone are going to be more significant with crypto uh, because it's going to be the exchange of value, not just data. This is going to change everything. Anyway, I'll stop there, Chris. I like what you're saying about, about real estate. I'm going to come back to that because it seems to be there seems to be a whole host of things which are going to perhaps be replaced by digital. And then there seems to be a whole host of things which you and I will still value the tangible, the, the real asset. And so then there's a blending of those two things. So, you know, as you were talking about, you know, as we get into, uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on things like the metaverse and AR and everything else like that. But let's kind of talk about uh, decentralized finance. Let's kind of move on to that kind of topic thinking about as you were saying this is now a transfer of value this isn't we're now going to start talking about things like payment acceptance and things like that how do these technologies change that very traditional business model because we've got to say that the banks and the the financial system is still yes we've seen some digitalization but it still runs on a very old technology and system behind it really yeah and and let me just start out by saying I think kind of the slow go approach and the fact that it's taking a long time to to do this transition, you know, to a whole new world, so to speak. I actually like the fact that it's taking a while because you do not want the world financial system just flipping a switch and going to crypto. You, you don't want that. You want this to take a while. You want us to contemplate the regulatory environment and all these things. But I mean, keep in mind when we start talking about payment systems and payment acceptance, you know, people say, and I hear this all the time, oh, you can't buy anything with crypto. Well, now Visa and MasterCard, PayPal and Square give you access to crypto. So anywhere that you can spend, you know, your Visa and MasterCard, PayPal or Square, you're good to go. So I think that's the first thing to say is when you look at payment systems, it's really been shocking because this year has really been the year, like last year and this year, where all these big payment systems have said, we're in. We're going to allow this to happen. So that has taken away this whole argument of you can't use crypto to buy anything. Anywhere you use those credit cards and those payment systems, you're good to go. So that's number one. And, and that's not even including 
Alipay and WeChat, which if you've ever been to China, everyone in China, that's all they use is Alipay and WeChat. That's how they pay for everything. But I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, Alipay and WeChat are also available here in the U.S. A lot of places accept Alipay and WeChat. So, you know, these payment systems are already out there. The digital systems that are the backbone already exist. So let's go to decentralized finance, because I think that's that's really a fascinating world that's gone from zero to, you know, hundreds of billions in no time. Right. So decentralized finance, it's basically let's just call it an ecosystem of disruptive financial services in this digital world. It's really hard to say what the, the exact boundaries of decentralized finance are. But let's just talk about, you know, you've got decentralized exchanges. So exchanges where you can trade cryptos, trade contracts, you know, smart contracts, which are basically a way to program, you know, each of these cryptos and have, you know, different rules around them. You have lending platforms like Compound. Uh, you have ways to trade, like you have wrapped Bitcoin, Zcash, Filecoin, all these things. They can be used now in this DeFi ecosystem. You wrap the Bitcoin, then you can use it. So, that, you know, you can do yield farming. You can have options. You have synthetic assets, which might include everything from currencies that you're familiar with. The euro, you know, the yen, the dollar, these things all have synthetic versions of the currencies inside this decentralized finance uh, world. Then you have things like, well, let's just say the backbone of this is mostly the Ethereum network. And a lot of these things sit on top of that. And you have things like staking that play into this. You have lending that plays into this, yield farming. It's an entire ecosystem that kind of mimics the real world, but it's all done in crypto. And I think what's been really, really interesting is the rates of return that are available just for staking, just for lending, things like that. I mean, these rates can be anywhere from 4%. I mean, even Coinbase, you know, when you're staking and doing things, Coinbase allows 4 to 5%, you know, just for, you know, but we've heard as high as 12, 15, 20% for some of these systems, right? For some of these decentralized structures. It's really fascinating. It totally mimics and expands this current concept of finance, but it is the Wild West. I'm not like upset that regulators look at this and they're like, hey, man, what's going on over there? There's hundreds of billions of dollars trading hands and it's really difficult to see who's doing what. You know, there's no FDIC here, right? And that's the thing to keep in mind is I, I think anyone who's been in crypto for a while has probably lost a wallet address or your private key or something like that. There's no redress here. You do something you do it wrong and it's gone. Like it's, it's over, you know? Yeah, there's no getting it back. Right. And, you know, I, I think you have confidence when you walk down the street to your bank and you know your local banker that if there's a mistake made, somehow, some way it's going to get fixed. That is not the case here. And you also know that banks are backed by FDIC and they're banked by, you know, I don't know what the regulatory agencies are in Europe, but, you know, you have different regulatory agencies that oversee that. You know, we have a whole bunch of banking, you know, regulatory agencies, and we make sure that people's money is fairly safe. You can trust that. I mean, DeFi, man, I, I can tell you horror story after horror story of crazy stuff that's happened. But there's also a lot of upside. A lot of people I know have made a tremendous amount of money. Um, a lot of people have leveraged in ways that allow them to do things they could never do. And they don't have someone looking over their shoulder and making sure they're, you know, an accredited investor, or is this okay with you? Or can you, it's basically a new form of freedom to do what you want to do with your money. Could you give me an example of, of where you've seen this work and how that looks? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I can tell you some of my friends that have you know basically been say staking, and you know, I have one buddy who's been doing this for a long time. You might stake a coin, which means you know you basically freeze it and say, okay, I'm going to stake this. I believe in this coin. I'm going to hold this for a long time. Then you can borrow against that. Then you might borrow against that. And then you might buy some synthetic, you know, assets and leverage something. Now, you used to be able to buy actual stocks and things like that. They've kind of cut back on that. But you could buy a currency that you believe in. Then you might be able to get some leverage on that. You could have all these things stacked on top of each other. And as long as things are going well, it amplifies your returns. I mean, it could be, you know, huge returns. 20, 40, 50, 80, 100, 200,000, 10,000 percent. I mean, it, well, some of the numbers are crazy out there, right? So you can do really interesting things. But I think the other thing is for people who are already in this sector and have large positions of, say, Bitcoin, 
they can leverage that. And actually, instead of just holding Bitcoin, they can hold that and then they can lend based on that. They can do things that allow them to get some return, just like people don't want to park their money in the bank and make 0.05% interest. You can park your Bitcoin somewhere and actually make interest on it. And I think that's really interesting, especially for the folks who have been in this a long time and don't want to sell their Bitcoin. Once again, buyer beware. When this thing goes bad, or if we go into a crypto winter, there's going to be a lot of people in a lot of pain if this goes bad, right? Um, and I think that's when you will have the regulators step in because people start screaming, I didn't know, I didn't know. It's risky out there right now, but it's really cool. So coming back to that kind of that idea. So as you were saying with real-time voting a minute ago, and do you need this kind of this representation anymore? Where does the traditional banking system sit in this DeFi world? Because it doesn't really seem like you need a traditional bank anymore. That would be the centralized model. We're now talking about the decentralized model. And apart from, I guess, there's a few things saying that banks have got experience and they've got some some great risk management within there. How does that banking system look if we fast forward a little bit and, and let's just say DeFi goes the right way and it works and it's mass adopted? Where do you see that going? Yeah, I mean, so let's talk about the banking system, traditional banking system for a moment. If you just go back to 2007, 2008, I think you remember when the traditional banking system was teetering on the edge, right? And you had this banking system that was supposedly safe and supposedly very conservative and understood their risk. And obviously they didn't. They were taking too much risk. They were taking too many chances. But who had to bail them out? Taxpayers around the world had to bail them out, right? And central banks bailed them out. And, and it turned into this huge shift and change in the global financial system. And matter of fact, in that environment is where Bitcoin was born, right? It was in that environment. So I think this idea that traditional finance is safe, I don't think that's necessarily true. I just think it's different. So where does traditional finance sit? You know, I, I had a great conversation with um, a global banker years ago when I was early on in crypto. And what he told me is, look, when you're understanding the way traditional banks look at this, they're going to follow it. And if you look at it, every traditional bank is doing research on crypto, blockchain, what is a DeFi, what is this going to mean? They're all doing research, but none of them are actually going to jump in until they believe they're losing market share or they're going to lose customers or something like that is going to happen. But as soon as they start moving, like 10 to 15% start going into crypto and blockchain, everyone goes. Now, I think you're going to see this in each of the different layers of services. So one was just this acceptance that Bitcoin's okay. So I think you started to see that Bitcoin's okay with a bunch of these larger banks and saying, okay, we understand that this is something that's okay. Or blockchain. All of the banks have accepted blockchain in some shape or form. Then you have groups like JP Morgan that have their own JP Morgan coin that allows you know, companies within their ecosystem to trade between each other or to do settlements between accounts that would normally have to go through maybe one or two hoops of foreign exchange. They're going to be able to do that instantly instead and stay in that same ecosystem. So I think you know, it's these little small steps towards that. But I think the payment systems and the settlement systems, these things are becoming more and more engaged with that crypto decentralized world. Now, sometimes it's on their terms. Sometimes it's you know touching some of these other things like Bitcoin, Ethereum. But I think the, the real issue is going to be smart contracts for banks and smart contracts and what that enables, basically programmable contracts and money and things like that. I think that's going to be too enticing for banks to pass up. You're going to have new financial products. You're going to have new efficiencies, new ways to cut costs. I think all of those things are going to come and, and they're going to see DeFi as a way to enable that. But it's going to be DeFi in a traditional finance sense. It's not going to be DeFi the Wild West the way we know it. They're going to slowly bring that in. You know, they're going to get the technology. They're going to get the expertise, you know, over time. And they're going to deploy that when it makes sense for them, when they see the, the opportunities. So let, let's just touch on smart contracts, because then we can kind of go into NFTs a little bit. But smart contracts, could you just lay out kind of what they are? So this is 
from my understanding, is the kind of the, the program or the, the way it's set up, which sits on the blockchain. Is that kind of the right way to be thinking about smart contracts? Yeah. So basically what a smart contract does is it takes you know a certain crypto and it holds it in value conditionally based on the elements of the contract. So for instance, on these decentralized exchanges, a lot of these things are done with smart contracts. So if you're trying to buy or sell, there's conditions. And if those conditions are met, you can buy and sell and trade these different cryptos. So that's great. That's a very basic smart contract. But you also might have something like an insurance contract. And you know you might be able to insure something under certain conditions. So let's take uh, you know a plane flight, for example. Well, let's say your plane gets delayed or canceled. Well, you know, you can always buy that option when you're online booking your flights. But what if you could do that with all of your transactions? Like if this happens or if this happens, you know, then you get paid or don't get paid. Well, you can set those conditions and then someone can say, well, it's going to cost you X to do that. Well, I mean, they actually have flights that are insured via crypto right now. And so what happens is instead of you having to go four to six weeks to wait for your payment from the airline after you submit a written, okay, this was done. And, you know, without that, what happens is they basically have a feed. And when your flight shows delayed, you might get a a certain payment. Your flight shows canceled. You get the full payment and it's automated. It's it's done immediately. Um, So I think there's a lot of those types of things that can be done with smart contracts. But there's a lot of other things, too, such as, you know, AML KYC. So anti-money laundering, know your customer. This is a huge thing in crypto because the traditional banking system doesn't want to engage unless they know who they're dealing with, right? And I think more and more, even in the digital world, you want to know who you're dealing with. So let's say you have a bunch of whitelisted wallets, which basically means you know these guys are okay. They've gone through AML KYC. You know who they are. And so you're like, okay, we can trade with them. Well, let's say you have a, a smart contract. And that smart contract says, you know, the first thing that needs to be met before we deal with this smart contract or initiate it is it has to be one of these whitelisted addresses. And so, you know, that's the first thing it checks. And if it checks that, you know, okay, you're in. You can now, you know, engage in this transaction. So there's really no limit. I mean, you can, you know, talk about all kinds of things. It could be the weather. Did it hit 28 degrees Celsius today? That basically engages a certain part of the contract. I mean, it could be any number of things. But a lot of it is now basic. It's price action within, you know, trading action, things like that on decentralized exchanges, insurance contracts, like did this default, then pay this, basics like that. But there's really no limit to how intricate these things can be. And I think it actually talks about that next stage of work and how it may become task oriented instead of working for a certain company, you know, taking that whole giga work thing to another level. No, that's that's really interesting. And actually, I think I think we're starting to even see that in mainstream already, aren't we? Some of those things. So I can give you an example. I don't know whether you guys have Revolut in the US, but we do here in the UK. And um, they automatically build into one of the cards, which I've just set up with them, that kind of that insurance protection for a delayed flight. So we're already seeing this kind of come through. And that's what I find fascinating is right at the start of this conversation, we said, well, all of this technology is only 12 years old. And we seem to have that same sort of delay in it's kind of really filtering through as we did with the iPhone, let's say, when really starting to see that power through. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think those applications are coming through pretty strong already. When you were talking about verifying people, then I guess this is a great segue now into NFTs, because that's kind of where I see some of the fascinating applications for NFTs. I mean, we've obviously got some, I'm going to call crazy stuff going on. You know, everything from pudgy penguins and uh, everything, I don't know, a, a clip art rock selling for several million dollars. But the actual usability and again, the application of some of these things in the future, I think is 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 just mind blowing. So let's do a bit of a dive into it. NFTs. And let's talk about some of those future applications. I mean, where, where do you see that space going? So first of all, NFTs are fascinating. And uh, my, my partner at Crypto Futura Fund, uh, Jeremy, actually has done a deep dive on NFTs, as has my other partner, Josh. Uh, these guys really, really understand it. I, I learn a lot from them as they go through that world. Um, so NFTs, first of all, non-fungible tokens. So these are 
unique digital assets. So a non-fungible token or an NFT is something that's absolutely unique. It's one of a kind and it's provably one of a kind because it has whatever digital signature that shows it's one of a kind. This is what it says it is. At the very beginning of 2021, we were at about 2 billion. Now we're trading over 10 billion, right? I mean, it's like, it's crazy the amount of NFTs that are out there. It kind of all started with, with CryptoKitties. That was the first one to get big, right? And everyone wanted their CryptoKitties. And for those of you who don't know CryptoKitties, it's like this little cat. It's a digital cat. It's really cool. They're all u- unique, but you can also breed them and then make, you know, sometimes you get lucky and get a more unique one. Um, and these things trade for big bucks, some of them, you know, not all of them, obviously. But it was this concept of this unique digital item. And what's crazy is now, you know, they have like hats for crypto kitties. So you have an NFT that can own its own NFT. So you can actually attach ownership to something that's already, you know, something that's owned. So that's crazy. Uh, you actually have that kind of thing going. But I think that showed us what the potential this was. But I also want to say that also showed us the potential to break the system. Crypto kitties broke Ethereum. You know, I mean, it was like everyone wanted it so bad, you know, that it broke the entire system briefly. In what way did it break? It was just too many transactions, too many people trying to get through the same small door okay. to exchange these crypto kitties at the same time. It just became a fervor that it couldn't cope with that volume. Exactly. Okay. So I think that's fascinating. I think that's great. But it's really gone quite crazy since then. So you have art. So one of my partners, Josh, is, is quite an avid art collector. This guy is phenomenal. His art collection is great, but he's also really, really knowledgeable about the different types of art and the history of art. And so one of the things he was talking about was, he was telling me about was video art and the fact that video art has taken decades to get accepted. And so when these NFTs came along and NFT art came along, he's like, this could take a long time. And he was early on in NFT art. He's like, this could take a long time. Fast forward a year and Beeple is selling stuff for 6 million, then 69 million. I mean, this is NFT art selling for millions of dollars, tens of millions. That is crazy. I don't think the art world saw this coming. Of course, there's a huge controversy in the art world about this and what it should and shouldn't be. But I think that's fascinating. But then you have things like trading cards, NBA Top Shot. You know, this is a program that allows you to trade clips. And, you know, you've got specialized highlights and things like that, where it's instead of just a regular trading card, you've actually got something to see now. you got something to watch. And, you know, people are just going nuts for this stuff. And it's not just those things. Those are tradable. Those are, that's art. When you start talking about music and what if you could program and have like, this song is an NFT and you can trade it, you can listen to it. And every time it pays a small royalty, you know, to whatever that transaction is, it pays a small royalty to whoever wrote it. There's things like that that can really change things. That's the same with video clips, tweets, but that's all of, you know, what we think of as, you know, the outside world and the things that we like in the analog world. Then talk about just the digital world itself. You know, we talked about the central land. You got virtual real estate. Those are each NFTs. You have virtual real estate in lands like Decentraland, Sandbox, CryptoVoxels. All these different worlds that are out there have their own real estate. But then your characters or your, you know, basically your avatars in these worlds can dress up in different things that are individual items. Those items are NFTs and they might be very unique and very rare. Then you have games and in-game items that are NFTs. And these things can trade. Now, what's really cool is in the future, I believe, when you have like a gaming company, you may be able to take your NFTs across platforms. So let's say you're playing a game where you've got a plus five dagger. You might be able to take that into a space game. And now it's a plus three ray gun. You know, it's like you might be able to translate that between different platforms. And, and I think that's probably coming um, and could be really interesting. But, you know, I, I think this concept of royalties NFTs actually having their own ownership of other things. And, and there's all kinds of places to you know exchange this right now. You can go to OpenSea. And I would I would say anyone who hasn't looked at the NFT world, go to OpenSea or Rarible or Zora and, and just check out the variety of things that are available. There's some really bad stuff, but there's some really interesting stuff. You can kind of get lost in that. But I also want to say, you know, when you start looking at NFTs, there's other things like supply chains, you know, tracking and tracing gemstones, wine, 
you know, tickets could be NFTs. And essentially they kind of are already, but you can make them NFTs and make them much simpler to track and trace. The problem is, keep in mind, as we're doing this and we're using our mobile phones, the amount of information that's captured, you know, it could capture where you are, when you are, all that kind of thing too. But which also might be interesting because it could be a verification process. So let's say for media, when someone says, look, I'm at this crazy event, I'm filming this right now, then it can verify what's their GPS coordinate. Are they actually there? How close are they to the action? You know, and it can verify and say, okay, it's worth this. And then maybe that video becomes an NFT and it's worth X amount. All kinds of, I guess, different things. But I think the main issue here is ownership in the digital world and the exchange and tradability of it. I think those are really the key issues that makes it really fascinating to me anyway. Yeah, I'm spot on. And I, I love what you've just said there. I, I think the one of the things that were one of the avenues which really got me kind of excited about this space was something you've just touched on and that that was tickets because of course at the moment let's say you're an nba team or you i don't know a football team here in the uk and you sell those tickets and yes you you and i could kind of trade those we might go through one of the big ticket resellers like i don't know we have like ticket.com here and things like that Ticketmaster, but the club itself doesn't benefit at all from us changing those Ticketmaster, yeah, they take like a, I don't know, I'm just going to make this up, but let's say 10% commission on that. Whereas I'm guessing in an NFT world, that ticket, if it's structured in an NFT, it can just go, okay, well, sure, you can trade it as you would any other exchange tradable asset, but the commission now comes back to the club, that it doesn't come out to this third party reseller. And I, I think applications like that are absolutely fascinating because they're new revenue streams for a lot of these businesses, which at the moment they are prevented from, from accessing. Well, now you're talking about like the disintermediation of the middleman, right? I mean, like you do not need the middleman in a lot of these transactions. And I think that that's what we're going to discover is we have these social networks now. We have these, you know, folks that follow your team, you follow this stuff. And you're right. If you could go somewhere that you can trade these things on your own, like, the person that took the risk and bought the ticket for that playoff game that may or may not happen up front, and then maybe they should be rewarded, you know, to be able to get a higher price for that if they decide not to go. And then maybe the team should get a cut of that because they're the ones performing, right? So it, it basically what it does is it reallocates who gets value. And I think that's really important. I think that's a critical part of, you know, the NFT possibilities programmable money, um, looking at smart contracts, all of these things allow us to rethink the way we exchange value and who is valuable, who who actually deserves the value for each transaction. I think you put your finger on it. I mean, I think about some of the teams here in Chicago, right? So the Chicago Bulls during Michael Jordan's era, unbelievable what some of those tickets went for, right? A playoff game to see Michael Jordan, crazy. But the Bulls never saw the upside of that. The Bulls sold all those tickets at this price. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And I can't even imagine when you talk about football, in, and I'm talking about football, you know, football in, in Europe, uh, you know, it's got to be crazy what some of those tickets would go for. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, as, as you're saying, that the, the club itself who sold them initially sees no additional uh, value exchange from that point. The same is true, I think, for, you know, while we're on this topic, is young artists. I mean, this is another thing where, you're a young artist and you might be selling your prints for, I don't know, a couple of hundred dollars with the hope that in years to come, decades down the road, you're going to make it and your prints will now sell for a million dollars. But you you see no value exchange from those early prints. It's just the collectors that do. And again, you know, this I think this could significantly change the fortunes of those young photographers, young videographers, young painters, whoever. I kind of see the spaces... It's almost unlimited applications. I know we've spoke before that coming to the end of writing a book. And uh, again, I, I guess I could NFT each page and sell those. And that would be a one way of funding it. And actually, there could be a royalty kickback to the person who who owns that, that page. They get one four hundredth of the book price or whatever else like that. I mean, it's, it just seems to be that this transforms the way we think about exchange 
into completely different worlds. Man, I haven't even seen it yet, but I want page 17, man. I'm, I'm paying up for it. You let me know, Chris. I'm on, if I manage I'm to on. NFT, page 17 is yours, Clint. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. No, I mean, you're right. And I, I think that is what we have to look forward to is a restructuring. And I think that's why you see so much pushback from the traditional financial world, from traditional regulatory environment, from all that, because everything's about to change, right? So who holds the power in different structures who holds the, the rights, all that's about to change. And I, I, for the good, I think. I think artists should hold more of the, the power. I think, and that's artists both in art, music, you know, any, anything that's out there. Um, but it's also like writers, um, people who come up with stories. Maybe, you know, you have, you know, maybe Reuters and AP and all these, you know, the BBC. Maybe the stories now, if you write a really good story, you get paid more, you know, instead of having like a flat fee or whatever. If it gets a lot of responses, once it gets above a certain, you know, you get a bonus. Once it gets up, you, know, you get another bonus. I think there's a lot of interesting ways this could go. So let's let's bring this forward into a, into another application, and now I want to talk about now the metaverse because I think this is kind of where a lot of these things that we've been talking about now start to come together in a different way again. So kind of, you know, for me, I. I guess I'm, I'm kind of alluding here to the combination of, let's say, blockchain, AI, AR, and a lot of these digital assets. I mean, again, when we get to the metaverse, wh where do you see that going? Yeah. So first of all, this is the scariest topic uh, I think that we'll talk about. But I also want to say, like, once again, the metaverse is, it's already here. It's just not mature right? It's already here. It's just not equally distributed. The metaverse is basically us in a digital world. What does that look like? I don't know what the real definition is right now, globally, what we think it is, but let's just say it's, you know, us being in, inside and engaging within that digital world, that digital sphere. So, you know, and, and I would add virtual reality to AI and AR uh, and blockchain. And, and you know, I, I think that idea of being fully immersed, that whole ready player one aspect of this. So first, there's a lot of different definitions out there and a lot of different people who think about it in different ways. Um, but let, let's talk about some of the stuff we've already talked about, like NFTs. You know, I think those are going to be in this digital world. You're going to be able to engage with those and all types of NFTs. And you're going to be able to engage with all types of ideas and communities. And this could be in a digital landscape, like a Decentraland, Cryptovoxel, Sandbox, where you go into that world and you're engaging in that world. So you may be engaging with, you know, a giant 30 foot robot and that's your friend next door. Everyone's going to have their own avatar. But I think really, I, I guess before we even get into this, I want to say as a humanity, we are looking at a shift in our identity, who we are as people. And I think, you know, if, if you just go back to the beginning of time and you say, okay, where did we originally, you know, get our identity? And, it, you know, it kind of started at this family level, then the tribe level, you know, and it might go out from there into different interest groups. That's about to get put on steroids because now we are, we've already seen it with social media. You interact with the people that have like-minded interests and you can do that in several pods or small groups. Well, now that's all going to be available in this digital realm where you can engage in ways that you never imagined. You can actually see that person and it feels like when you're, let's say in VR, it feels like they're in the real space with you. You can interact with them. Now there are shortcomings and maybe they're not shortcomings depending on what you think, but like smell and taste, those things are not really available at this point. You do have some sensory stuff that you can do now. They have like gloves and, and full body suits. So you can actually sense the environment and you can move in an environment but that's not the same as actually being there. So I think there's, there's still a huge difference between the real and the digital, and we know that. However, and I will say this, having spent the summer on VR with my son, we did a deep dive project trying to figure out which of these worlds was going to be the metaverse. And what we came away with is VR is not ready, and neither are the, you know, the hardware, uh, the different types of you know, engagement, I mean, it took my son and I, who are both fairly digitally native, it took us weeks to get this thing up and running, two different systems to work with each other so that we could actually engage in the world together. So it's not super easy. It's clunky, but it's coming. And when you're in that world, 
I promise you, Chris, jumping across a chasm when you're wearing VR goggles is as scary as being on the edge of, you know, a cliff. Like you're like, I don't know if this is going to be okay or not. Your brain thinks that you're there. Your brain and all the things it's taking in thinks you're there. So I think that is coming. Now that's just, let's, that's the deep future. When I say deep future, that could be five years away, but that's the deep future right now. Right now we're looking at AR, you know, augmented reality and the fact that new, you know, versions of like Google Glass, things like that, new versions are available now and you're going to be able to see more and more. And what that means is augmented reality is going to allow you to get digital information in real time overlaid on the real world. So as you look around, you'll be able to see whatever data set you paid for or subscribe to or get access to. You'll be able to look around the room and see, you know, someone's credit score, or you'll be able to look around the room and see who's on Tinder or look around the room and see who's, you know, and you'll just be able to look around the room and this digital overlay will show you. Pick up all this additional data. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, most people carry a cell phone. Most people carry, you know, or have wearable, you know, I got digital, you know, wearables. All these things pick up data and transmit data. So you're going to be able to live in this whole new world. You, you'll be able to look at a bus and see its route. You can say, you know, show map. It'll, you know, pick it up. And you'll be able to see its route. Oh, is that taking me where I want to go? Yes, I'll jump on that. You know, and you'll be able to pay digitally, just touch your glass. You pay digitally as you get on the bus. I mean, that's where these things are going to come together. But I think that the really interesting thing for me is when you start thinking about the future of work. So a great example you've probably heard of is Axie. And Axie is this game that, you know, right now, especially in the Philippines, it's huge, but people will sponsor teams. Those teams will basically buy these little fuzzy things or, well, they look fuzzy, but they're the little creatures. They buy these creatures and these creatures basically can be, you know, bred just like uh, crypto kitties and you get different things and you fight these battles, you do all that, but you can also collect value within the game. And so people have learned that they can work a couple hours a day, seven days a week, and make as much as they were at a full-time job. And so in the Philippines, a lot of people have been doing this and people sponsor the teams and there's the upside and downside. I mean, I've got a buddy of mine that's done great things in that and has actually looked at the upside and helped people actually get out of poverty. Wow. And, you know, on a regular basis. What if that's the future of work is people sponsoring people to play games and you're playing that within, you know, the, and, and you're able to make as much money as you did doing your regular work. Now, I think that this is, exciting and dangerous because I think it changes everything. And then what happens if the internet goes down where you are and that's your livelihood, right? I think there's a lot of things that change the way we think about interacting with people. And what if you get shut out of something? You know, what if you get, you know, you know, basically if they blacklist you from one group and then another group just decides, well, they blacklisted them. We're going to blacklist them too. We don't know anything about them, but if they did, you know, we will. And then suddenly you're outside society in that sense. You're, you're blocked. Right. Yeah. But then again, you look at like The Matrix and, you know, I, I was watching the movie The Matrix with my son. I said, hey, man, you know, at the end, I was all excited. You know, this guy was, I, th I think my son was 13 or something when we watched it. And at the end, I'm like, so do you take the red pill or the blue pill? And he's like, the blue pill, man. I'm not, why would you go into the craziness of the real world when it, it's that bad? Why not, if your brain thinks you're in this digital world and it's good, why not stay there? I was like, man, that is scary. I was not expecting that. <laughs> but I think that that's, that's where I think we're going to have that option in the not too distant future. So if you are in the real world and you don't have power, you don't have money, you don't have access, there's a lot of things you don't have, you might be able to pay a very small amount to get an AI that allows you to experience your own metaverse that allows you to feel that power, to have control, to live in a world that is amazingly beyond what you do day to day. And then maybe you stop, you get your food, you eat your meals, you, you know, go to sleep. I mean, yeah, that in some ways that seems really depressing, but in some ways it might be really engaging for people if we get the technology to a place where it's really hard to tell the difference between reality and the digital world. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think you know, we're really going to have to re-examine who we are as people, you know, our community, what we look like, who, you know, where we're from, our family, our skills, all these things are going to change so quickly. And 
we're going to be able to portray something in the digital world that perhaps we're not in the real world. And that's also going to be really interesting as we try to, you know, because we all do that at some level, you know, we all say, Hey, I'm from, you know, you, you say the things that you think are going to appeal to the people you're in the crowd with. Right. So you kind of pick and choose what you say about yourself. So you're already doing that in this analog world, in the real world, but in the digital world, it's amplified in ways that are, you know, really mystifying. It's going to be crazy. I, I don't know what it's going to be like, but it's exciting. I think the aspect of work, the future of work and the metaverse, you know, again, I see this as potentially the the next step up, the next catalyst of globalization in the sense that globalization, I mean, it's always been there. We've, human society is a global society. We've always had some sort of global trade, but globalization has really sped up as we've found it easier and easier to navigate the world. And the limitation at the moment, I mean, you're sat in Chicago, I'm sat here in North Wales, and the limitation is that, yes, I can see you while we're recording this podcast, but when we have no sense of being in the same room or space. Whereas in the metaverse, all of a sudden, I could invite you to my house to record this. And you, you get a far deeper sensory experience, uh, which again, you know, translate that into work meetings and meeting clients or meeting up with uh, kind of, I don't know, researchers, analysts, whoever, all of a sudden, you know, that, that depth of experience is available virtually. And I, I think that's going to be something quite, quite interesting. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I think, you know, it, it's been fascinating to, going through COVID and realizing you can do a conference online. And there are ways to create side rooms and side chats, and you can actually do a visual, you know, a picture of the conference. You know, my wife was attending a conference the other day where you actually walk through the hallway digitally, like in this hallway. And as you pass people, you can actually pick, a, you know, a person to have a conversation with, wow. which is wild, you know, and, and I think that that's really interesting. It kind of creates a, a version of that, but you're right. But it, I will say this, I've had this happen to me twice in this last year where I met someone online, you know, for work and we we're talking about things, you know, clients. And when I meet them in person, I met these two guys separately. One is six, five and one is six, six. I thought these guys were my height. Like I'm five, 10, right? I'm like, holy smokes. These guys are much different than I thought. Man, these guys are huge. Um, so it was, it was really a bit of a shock, right? When you finally meet them in person, you're like totally different. But I think it's interesting to see the way our, perceptions are distorted by what we're seeing on a screen and what we experience and then what the assumptions are we make about people because of what we see or the interaction we see on a screen those assumptions are going to be magnified in the metaverse and so you know because you're going to be able to portray so much in the metaverse according to what you want to portray about yourself that i think it's it's really fascinating um, and you can dial things in and out automatically so that, you know, if you have a certain glitch, you can dial that out. No, no one's going to see that or, you know, whatever it is. I think it's really, really interesting. And, and it probably, I mean, boy, I'll tell you that the PhD papers that will be written by AI bots years from now about this will be fascinating. So that, that depth of experience Let's let's kind of look behind the curtain for a minute, because that depth of experience, I think also we need to talk about is the level of data that's being recorded on the other side. And where I want to bring this around to is where could that data be used, um, possibly for good, um, possibly for control. Because, I mean, that's something that we obviously know that, you know, kind of data can be used for that. We've had many examples of that in society in, in the past. Um, I know one topic that we've spoke about very briefly in the past is, is kind of looking at some of the models going on in other societies. So I, th I think it was yourself that brought attention to me, the, the China credit system. And, and if there's so much information being recorded about us, like, where do you see that? Uh, so, and... and the other issue with the information is not just that the information is recorded, but now with the blockchain, that's permanently recorded, right? So once it's on the layer of the blockchain where it is, you can't get back to it and edit it and change it and say, that didn't happen. I promise that never happened. Uh, there's not a digital wipe here. There's not a digital eraser for some of these systems. 
we can't delete our social media feed anymore. Right. I mean, things are really so. I think there's going to be have to be a whole new set of regulations, a whole new set of rules. The problem is who's deciding what those rules actually are. Where are the boundaries? Where are the bumpers? You know, what are we going to be? And you're right. I mean, when you start looking at the data that's collected, is that going to be owned by government? Is it going to be sovereign individuals? Like, do we get to control our own? You know, like in Europe, it's much better because you guys get to control a lot more of what companies can do with your data. In the U.S., that doesn't exist in the same way. So there's already a, a, a tremendous difference between Europe and the U.S. But when you look at, say, China and the U.S. or Europe, like China is really interesting. Like in China, I don't think there's the same expectation of privacy. They know that the government has access to whatever they want to have access to. That's just the way that operates. So it's it's a totally different system. Whereas here, you know, in the West, it's more corporations and companies that control the data and get access to the data, buy and sell the data, collect the data. And, you know, keep in mind, every time we buy a new device, you know, your phone, your watch, you know, all these things, anything that's digital, anything that has a chip is now collecting data. So every aspect, you know, you look at the health stuff that's on, you know, an Apple watch or a Fitbit or something like that, that's all being recorded somewhere, right? Someone's got all that. So, you know, do you really want them to know when you're eating a cheeseburger? Cause they can tell, you know, they can tell by, you know, your heartbeat, your cholesterol levels, whatever. I mean, they're going to be able to track all this in real time. And I guess, I guess a spinoff from that is in, in real time, you could, just as we were talking about before, if your flight's delayed and you get compensation, I guess your medical cost, if you pay like a monthly subscription to a private medical kind of service, if you're suddenly, I don't know, eating cheeseburgers every lunchtime, that, that could suddenly like, okay, you, you've tipped over the cholesterol limit and right. your, your premium's now gone up or I don't know, uh, everyone's talking about cutting carbon and we've just noticed that you've driven in a three liter SUV to here and therefore you're not helping us achieve our carbon emission target and you're going to be individually taxed. I, I don't know. Right. So once you get to programmable money and it's actually run by governments or, you know, it's actually out there in a way that, you know, companies affect, you know, what you do and how you do it. But think about it. Now we're talking about access to things, payment systems. So let's talk about COVID. What if you had a, a digital payment system or a CBDC, you know, central bank digital currency for every country, and they all had that in place before COVID. Now you could say, okay, everyone above this certain income level, you know, you don't get any benefits. But if you're at this income level, we're going to give you X number of dollars. And if you're working, we'll give you X. Once you get your, you know, your COVID shot, you get a bonus. You know, once you do, and so you can start to actually dial in controls of your population, right? Now, in some ways, this could be good. So when you have a crisis, you can get the payments to the people that most need them to actually, and you get that done immediately. But then you do have this issue, which I think you raised, which is beautiful, is, yeah, when you start looking at, if you just paid for, you know, a pound of marijuana, and then you go to the liquor store and you just bought a case of beer, and then you go home and turn on Netflix by yourself, and they can tell no one else is there, they're like, man, I... I don't know how good that is. You know, that might, your insurance premiums might start to go up a little bit, right? But I think it's, you know, we're not even getting to the point where, but close. So the, that, that case of beer might have RFID chips in it that can tell you when each one is open, each one is drunk, and who's in the presence of that. So we can tell how much you're drinking and what you're drinking, right? Now, people are like, man, I would never do that. But what if you got a... $5 per day bonus to allow access to that data. You know, there's all kinds of moving parts here. I don't know what's going to happen, but you could also look at it from the good side. Like, hey, you know, Tommy just helped Sarah. You know, Angela just helped, you know, Harry over there. Like, and if you help someone, you do something for someone, maybe you get a bonus for doing that, create a better society. I don't know. But you're right. It's those data points. And I think this idea that, you know, it's already happening in China, you know, the access to different transportation systems, you know, different uh, things that you can do, those are all determined based on your behaviors. And so I think we're entering a really dangerous realm when people can dial your behaviors 
by just a little bonus here, a little bonus there. I mean, we do it already. You know, we've done it for years. You get coupons. You're more likely to buy something if you get a discount, right? Well, I was thinking about the other day. I, I went to buy something like, you know what? Just because I have a discount, I actually don't want this. You know, 40% of something off that I didn't want in the first place is still 60% of something I don't want. But it's behavioral psychology. We, we do things in certain ways because we're, you know, we're led that way. No, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. So to, to finish, I just want to ask you the very simple question. And that is, we, I mean, we've talked about so many different things. But right now, what's the one thing that gets you most excited in this space? So I would say that the one thing that gets me most excited, honestly, is this concept of DAOs, the Decentralized Autonomous Organization. That's what gets me excited because I think that is a new way to organize people. And I think the potential for this and, you know, what I like to say is, you know, we haven't had a new way to organize people since 1600 in the corporation. And everything is based on corporations now, you know, our whole society. And I think decentralized autonomous organizations, we got a long way to go with figuring out governance, governance over time, because you have to make sure that all of these different DAOs, that all the stakeholders are still, you know, incentivized over time as the system changes. That's really difficult to construct a governance system that does that. But once we have that, I think that changes the way we interact with each other, the way governments actually hold power. <clears throat> this idea of a global community, I think that starts to change along different interests. Um, so I, I think that is the big thing. I think for me, that's the big thing. That's where this is going, is changing the way we are and how we organize. So just break that apart. As I said, you know, kind of, we've got a few minutes left, but break that apart. So how does a decentralized autonomous organization look? I mean, why is it different? How is it different to the, the traditional corporation? Well, because I think, you know, number one, when you think about a corporation, so you, you get together with a group of people say, we're going to do this, or maybe it's just yourself. And you go and you have to register, you, you know, you have shares, you have all this stuff, you have this structure, and then you can go out and, and do business. With a decentralized autonomous organization, you basically put the governance in place. And then, you know, it's basically pre-programmed once you have it set. And then all the decisions are made based on a set of parameters. And it kind of moves forward based on these parameters. And, you know, people may vote and say, hey, we want to use the, the crypto or the money that's in the, the treasury to do this or do that. And the people can kind of vote on this. Well, it's in real time. The offices are never closed. And... Everything is recorded. Everyone knows what's going on. It's open source. Everyone can see, it's completely transparent. Everyone can see everything. So when you think about corporations, how many corporations can you really understand? You can't because they're either private and even the public ones, you're not in the boardroom when the meeting happens. Whereas here you can see so much of what goes on and why and how, and then it forces people to be accountable. And then it also allows things to be accomplished in real time or maybe allows you to put as much energy into it as you want. And you might get payment out of it. Like you provide this service or this development, and then you get this payment back from that system. Or you're incentivized to do this. Or maybe it's just, I want to put a whole bunch of money in this, and I'll just stake, you know, that I'll, I'll stake that crypto that I have within that, that DAO. And I'll just be the guy that just holds it and just says, hey, there's value here, and I'm not going to take it out. There's value in that. So there's a lot of different ways that you know, we can start to move into different areas. I mean, this could be, you know, ESG, this could be, um, you know, the, these environmental causes or other things that, you know, you basically get paid for the amount of effort you put in on an instant basis and however much or little you want to pay, you know, be involved or pay or, you know, participate. I think there's really no limit to that. And I'm not describing it as well as the future holds, but when I say there's no limit, think about the corporation was originally one big Dutch East India company that was trying to rule the world. Um, and then think about all the social organizations and social media groups that are out there and all the subgroups. Each of those could be a DAO and each of those could be exchanging value, not, not just ideas, but exchanging value based on those ideas. And I think that value is what gets us going in certain directions, hopefully for the betterment, hopefully for the betterment of, of the world. I think I'm going to have to get you back and we're just going to have to do an entire episode on that topic, just tracing it all the way 
forward from, as you say, the the kind of those very early, I think it was Amsterdam, wasn't it, that had the first uh, exchange. And uh, yeah, just where we're going with that. But Clint, thank you so much for being on this show and, and the conversation and, and everything that you've uh, you've kind of brought to the table. It's been great to have you on. Chris, it's really been my pleasure. I always enjoy talking with you. You know, uh, anytime you want to have a chat, just let me know. And uh, thanks to your listeners for uh, making it through the podcast. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Transitional Matters. Make sure to like, subscribe, and sign up to the show's email newsletter by going to chrismarshall.uk. And we'll see you next time for more from the world of mega trends and transitions. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute an offer or recommendation to buy or sell any securities. Content should be treated as educational and general and should not be seen as a recommendation to use any particular investment strategy.